Uh, good morning, uh, kids. Thanks for hanging in there. You are dismissed for children's ministry. Have a wonderful time. And if you would be turning open to Revelation chapter 15. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, we, in, in just trying to sense what the Lord would want to accomplish this morning with us as his church, and, you know, typically we're asking, God, what are you doing in us right now that we need to be paying attention to, that we need to care for one another through, and we need to be praying about. And this week, just the, the theme of adversity has been on my mind and heart um, in the different categories that we've gone through. And what we find in Revelation chapter 15 is uh, what to do during the adversity. And so it is my hope that we will be stirred by God's word, but then uh, a moment after the, the preaching of God's word that we would care for one another and pray for those who are facing adversity, in whatever the category. Um, we oftentimes minimize what we're going through because we don't want to make a big deal about things. Or we might have a pride issue that just doesn't want everybody to know that we're needy in the category. Uh, but we are the body of Christ, and we're called to be a community of believers that looks to one another to support and help and, and uplift and so, whenever we pray for one another, yeah, we're, we're kind of outing ourselves. Yeah, my life's not perfect. Welcome to the club. And when we are, are doing that, we're saying, I need my brothers and sisters in Christ. To com to, I need to be able to feel the, the comfort of the Spirit through my brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's why um, we want to take time to pray for one another afterwards, but... Let's look at Revelation 15 and be stirred. Excuse me one second. <coughs> and be stirred by God's word and what he's doing in us. God's word says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels and the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. <coughs> 
And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. God, give us understanding. Even as we, we study and we're in the midst of studying about your judgment that you enact on the earth. Teach us how to listen well for what you're saying in this. Because we do want to be comforted. We want to have patient endurance as the result of our time in your word. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we have an image in this chapter of believers standing beside the sea with harps of God in their hands singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So what is God calling believers to do? Even in the midst of God executing his judgment and the seven bowls that we'll see in Revelation 16, that's, that's another cycle. It's the third, I think, third and final cycle of the examples that we have from the seals that are opened and then the trumpets that are blasted and then the bowls that are poured out. These are, uh, they're an ongoing, the first four typically are ongoing throughout human history. Uh, five and six are, are usually about what heaven and the battle, the final battle that comes that will end all things. And seven is when God says it's done. Come. And we all stand before the great white throne, Jesus, who is purely white in that throne judgment. So that's what is coming. But here's what God calls his people to do. Worship him. And so what we are to do is sing. We're to sing on the sea. And we see in Scripture that that worship has, you know, we... We usually want weapons for our spiritual battle and our conflict, but we're trying to figure out, I got prayer, I got the Bible, I got people with me, I'm fasting, I'm, I'm journaling. We, we look to those disciplines as, all right, here's the weapons for my battle. But that's not where God goes first. See, those help us see him so we will sing to him. It's an uncommon weapon for battle. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there's a lot of verses that you see in your notes, but I'll just pick out some. It's a big story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where here Jehoshaphat is facing an enemy. In verse 2, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you. They're all over the place. Look at verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So he's saying, we have no idea what to do. Their enemies are coming, a great multitude. We're done. And he picks up in verse 15. And he said, listen, all Judah inhabitants and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord God to you, the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And we read that. It's like, how in the world do I walk out life not thinking this is my battle? Because we feel it. And we feel it so intensely sometimes that we wonder if God's even with us. We feel it so intensely and we're just saying, God, can, can you just do something to let me know that you're still in control? And, and maybe we're puzzled that he, he, can't, he doesn't even do that. 
are distracted in our times of prayer, distracted in reading the scriptures. We just can't figure out what God's doing. How do we see? I know mentally the battle is yours, God, but it sure feels like I'm the one left here alone sometimes to do it. Look at verse 16. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the valley, at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. What? Go down and face them for battle, but you won't have to fight for the battle. You know, I, uh, several years ago in the fall of, well, actually about almost three years ago uh, to the month, I discovered, well, thankfully God's grace in Diane Rose, who is the beloved to us, but also a dermatologist, uh, saw this thing that on my lip that wouldn't go away. And I thought it was a little, it looked like a canker sore thing. It was just weird. Ended up being malignant melanoma. And I remember coming to this passage and saying, God, now I was helpless to face this battle. I'm not a surgeon, so I couldn't take it out myself. I had to trust people I didn't even know. The plastic surgeon, 40% of my bottom lip was removed and the plastic surgeon had to reconstruct my bottom lip. I met the plastic surgeon four hours before the surgery. I'm saying, God, I want to do. The, the uh, doctors, the oncological surgeon and the plastic surgeon had never seen a case like mine. How's, how comforting is that? Usually you want to go to the doctor like, oh, we got this. They're like, it's on your lip? There's this medical journal that the plastic surgeon is showing. Like, I, I went and researched, and I found what something close, this poor lady, these pictures that are in there, she looked like a baseball because there are just stitches everywhere. <laughs> my, mouth, my wife was like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> what are you going to look like after this? I don't know. But the whole time, the Lord is saying, Stand firm. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, this is where the comfort of the, of the body of Christ comes in. Um, Joyce Arang. I thought I saw her, but maybe not. Joyce? There you are. She sent me a little note. I think it was email. And she said, when she faced her cancer, the Lord brought her to this passage. And she said, I know it seems strange, but the Lord really did comfort me with this passage. And I went, and Joyce, that is great because he just showed me that too. So it's God showing us, I got you. I got you. But in the midst of the uncertainty, what do we do? Stand firm, hold your position, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. All right, what does that mean? Verse 21, when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord. And praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. That's a song. How do you stand firm and hold your position? Sing of the greatness of God. Sing of his glory. And then watch what happens, verse 22. When they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men in Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, so, who had come up against Jerusalem. So they were routed. God uses our worship to fight our battles. Isn't that amazing? We have a song 
of the Lamb. The Song of Moses, the Song of the Lamb, in this passage for us to think about. And when we sing, we, I think we apply what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What's our weapon? Our greatest weapon is our worship. It's our worship so we can, we can get, oh, when we sing it's, and sing worship to the Lord, it just removes our eyes off of ourselves when we look to him. So here, our conquering God has given us worship to conquer in the adversity of our spiritual conflict. He's a conquering God. And since we are his, he gives us that conquering as well. In verses 1 and 2, we, we see this singing on the sea, beside the sea. There's first, in verse 1, an announcement of final wrath. These are those scary verses in Scripture when we think, God, is it really going to be that bad? And we, wanna, we want to reserve something of it. God, do you have to do it that way? Remember, the announcement comes with a promise that, one, the wrath will be poured out completely. It will come to an end. Thankfully, God has an end to what he does. And when, when he's pouring out judgment, he's doing it for two reasons. He's judging unbelievers. He's judging unrepentant sinners. But he's also vindicating the faith of believers. When he judges and everybody looks at his judgment, those who had faith in him are proved right. Hey, we, we were right for trusting him. So he judges those who are rebellious in their pride toward him, and he vindicates the faith of those who have suffered and they've labored in this life to worship Jesus and, and have him exalted over their lives. And then in verse 1, there's an announcement of plagues. And this would take us back to Exodus, remember, when the ten plagues were poured out on Egypt. It reminds us of what God did in that moment because I think the bulls are going to represent what he's doing in that final moment of all human history. When he was, uh, all the plagues that uh, were in Egypt, right before Pharaoh said, okay, go. With the death of the, of the firstborn, just go, Moses, get out of here. Each one of those was a direct attack. The plague was a direct attack against an Egyptian god who was to preserve life by warding those things off. So the darkness, he go into the Egyptian god Ra, saying, all right, make it light. He was powerless. Ra was powerless, but God was powerful. He exalted himself. He demonstrated his sovereignty. He demonstrated his almightiness. He demonstrated his glory against all the Egyptian gods. And when there's final judgment that comes, and he's doing it now, he's, his judgment, it causes us to recognize that we're, we, we are futile in our thinking if we, if we look to an idol to think that that idol can give us what only God can provide for us. And we fashion those idols, idols out of what's in us that we want most, most in this life. So God will demonstrate his power over all things. But here is the picture for us to look at. This is the exciting one. Standing beside the sea of glass. Those who have conquered, remember, are those that are surrounded. Those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Remember, the beast is coming after Two beasts, you got the dragon, first beast, political figure, second beast, religious figure. But the whole system is those, the religious figure is the one that's executing judgment on those, on those that don't want anything to do with the dragon. 
These are those who have conquered through their faith in Christ. But listen, there's a promise there. There's a conquering. There's a conquering of that struggle with the dragon and the beast. And the sea that it's there. The number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. The sea represents in Scripture especially in the Old Testament, but we see also examples in the New Testament, the sea represents the power of evil that, rep- that causes the struggle in our lives because we live in a fallen world. It's not heaven yet. It's not been refined where there's no more sin and no more tears. It hurts to walk through life. That's the sea. And the, the times when life just all of a sudden... Poof, It comes up, we see when Jesus was with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, that all of a sudden a storm arose. And sometimes we can see the storm coming and sometimes it just happens. We find ourselves in the midst of struggle. And the sea represents the struggle that we all have in a chaotically rebellious world that doesn't want anything to do with God when we're saying, no, I want something to do with God. So you can think about the sea represents the flesh, our own struggle, the world that is hell-bent to deny God and remove God from everything and the devil himself. That's the sea. The sea is glass. There's no waves. Because Jesus, remember in Revelation 4, around his throne, demonstration of his sovereignty, there's no chaos. He controls it all. But in this sea of glass, it's mixed with fire. And I think we also see the symbol that that fire represents refining fire that's in the life of every believer. That's in our lives. And and that's where we feel within the spiritual conflict, remember, whatever the devil can bring, God turns around and uses it for our good, his glory. But in the midst of that, we're, we're trying to figure out what's going on. And God's telling us, I'm refining you. I'm I'm sharpening your focus so you can see me greater than you've ever seen me before. And those who conquer, church, those who conquer are standing. They're standing by the sea of glass. In essence, ruling with Christ over the chaos. There's no more chaos. Now, in a battle, we don't think we we, we cower. And we're, we feel battered and beat up. But look, here's a promise. That, okay, God, I don't, I don't come through the battle in order to stand victorious. I start the battle standing victorious. And that's where Jesus, as he rules over everything, he says, I'm with you. He tells us, remember the Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat and the waves are crashing. These guys are fishermen. They've been on the water before, but this is very different. I think it was, represented, it was the powers of hell trying to kill Jesus before he went to the cross. Satan was trying to take Jesus out in that boat. And there, Jesus, don't you care for us? His response was, peace be still, sea of glass. They're all amazed, freaking out, because they recognize, oh, he's God. Everything obeys him. He's God. But then he tells them this. Why were you afraid? I'm with you. I'm right here. So when it looks like God is sleeping, he's still there. You know, we oftentimes want God to show up really quickly. And sadly, 
He's just never late. He's rarely early, but he's never late. It's never late because he is, he's holding us so we look at him and become what we behold. So those who conquer are standing that we might reign in this life with him. We have, we have the advantage in the battle because of Christ. And then we see in verses 3 and 4, what is this song of Moses, the song of Lamb? Moses was, it's the same song, I think, but uh, a lot of these elements come from the song of Moses in Exodus when God delivered them, Red Sea, Exodus 15, they have, he's got a song. It's a song of Moses. Now he says, the servant of God. Moses was prefiguring what Jesus would be. It was an example of what Jesus would ultimately be. Somebody who stands in between God and God's people, mediating for them, praying for them, but also leading them. So here's the song of what, what Moses did, but it's the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb of Moses is sung by those on this side of the cross and resurrection. The Old Testament folks were singing toward Jesus with a longing, won't you come, Jesus? We on this side of the cross sing out of gratitude, highlighting what he's done when he came. The elements of the song are all from Scripture. They're all from God, what God has revealed about himself. And, and in, in a very real way, we don't make up songs for God thinking that he'll be pleased by them. What we do is sing his song back to him. But that is not a, that's not a selfish thing in God. Remember, God, for God to be God, he needs to fight for the fact that he needs to be on the throne of all of our hearts as believers. As his children, he needs to maintain his throne. Uh, James chapter 4, he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in you. God won't let us get away with being fools. He won't let us get away with our little temper tantrums. He just won't let us get away because he says, I love you. And I want you to understand me. I want you to know me. I think that's why Moses said, God, just show me your glory. Because I can't really figure out, put all these pieces together. I need an image of you that takes words away. To where I just say, oh, it's God. We need that. We need the exact same thing. And in, in the midst, we, we need, this song is God-centered, and we need God-centered songs. Look at how many times you appears. It's saying it to God six times. You, you've done this. They're yours. But a lot of times we will sing and pray for God to meet the needs that we think are the priority. God, will you do this? And oftentimes we discover that our priority list is not God's priority list. And he waits. He waits us out patiently because he loves us and he's a dear, heavenly, wonderful, loving father. And he just says, okay, I'll wait for you to stop asking for that. And then we get to a point of saying, God, I just want what you want. And he says, now, that's your want. You're coming to me with what you think your needs are. But what's your greatest want? What's our greatest want? God. We want God. That's who we want. And in the midst of the adversity, we... We will usually put our wants as our personal wants as the priority rather than God to meet our greatest desire. And that's the relief that we look for within spiritual conflict. We find it in God. We find it in God in ways that don't oftentimes uh, have explanation, understanding, or words to describe it. But we are uh, seeing that we are to wonder at his work. 
Here in the beginning of this song, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Your deeds, your ways. When we, this is a review of God's faithfulness. And when we get in moments where we have no idea what to do, we see it in the Psalms over and over again. Review God's faithfulness toward us, toward us because it'll, it shows up everywhere. A lot of times we're asking God, where are you now? To, to understand where he is now, we have to remember where he's been with us all along the way and his promises to never leave, never forsake. Remember that his ways are trustworthy even when they don't make sense to us. Isaiah 55 reminds us of that. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, that, that's not a scolding from God saying, will you just quit asking me to explain myself? He's not scolding. He's saying, trust me. Trust that in your mind, you can figure things out maybe one or three ways. God's figured them out a multitude of ways. And we go on in this psalm, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Uh, who, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Here is a, a fear of God moment where we see God in his glory. We see him in his greatness. And we see him as so strong that when we push on him, he doesn't move because he's a rock. He's a refuge. That's the type of God we need. But we are not to fear man. We are to fear God. I have been through my Christian life and as a pastor trying to figure out how to encapsulate what the fear of God is and how we do it. And here's here's my latest rendition of that. The fear of the Lord is our ever-growing understanding of God's greatness that draws us closer in to the experience of wonder and awe. When we see his mighty presence, his powerful love and his tender mercy, we hear his resounding song of love over us, leading us to trust him with everything we are and in every category of our lives. Because when we see Jesus, when we see God as he is, We want to make way for him. We want to give room for him to be everything, to be preeminent in our lives. But we we behold, sorry, we become what we behold. When we look at Jesus, that's the only way to become like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. We have, we see the glory because it's in Jesus. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another because it's the work of the Spirit doing it. Now, sometimes in a, in a fire, we feel, we fear God in a way that makes us think he's coming after us. Maybe he's angry. Maybe he just is trying to uh, repay a sin that we didn't repent of years ago. But his promise is to do good while he's working his glory in us. Look, he is in the fire with us. Our faith is being refined. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, that our faith is being refined. It's being tested. Like gold is tested in a refining fire to get the dross away. But he says, look, your faith is way more precious than gold. God's doing it because he wants to see his reflection in you. And then we see, for you alone are Holy, 
His holiness becomes our happiness that we pursue. God's work to draw the nations and giving him honor for saving people from all nations. And that word is ethnicities and tribes. We've seen that promise all in our study of Revelation. God is drawing all of his people from everywhere. Because he's got enough room and he's got enough love for everybody. And here's the promise. When we remind ourselves that God saves everybody everywhere, we put ourselves in that category. You, you saved me. You saved me? I didn't ask. I wasn't looking. So there's a new atheism that's like, I didn't ask God to die on the cross. Yeah, because your smug response represents that you think you can take care of yourself. But God comes to us when we weren't looking. Most of us running in the other direction, thinking that we're pursuing something that's going to give us life and coming up dead (laughs) over and over and over again. But we are in this number of all the nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. And these righteous acts have been revealed in Christ. He's the one that's been revealed to show us everything. So our worship looks at Jesus over and over and over again. And when we really see Jesus, we don't mind coming to him over and over again. We don't, we're not like that kid that, you know, the little children ask to do something over and over and over again because they haven't had enough experiences to, to out, spin me around again, again, again. They don't have enough other, they haven't ridden a roller coaster yet. That's a superior pleasure than being spun around getting dizzy. So it's again, again, you ride a roller coaster and you're an enthusiast, you're like, again, right now, asking the workers, can I just stay on? Let me slide, please. Because we have a superior experience. God has given us a superior experience. And so when we come to him and say again, he's not tiring. He loves it. He's saying, maybe he's finished again. Asking us again. You want to do it again? You want to do it again? He's eager. He's eager. So this is the role of what the church is to do. Even in the midst of God, his glory being shown forth and through his judgment being poured out. Look, in this, with the cycles that we have, remember that we, uh, the cycles of God's judgment, God's giving a foretaste of his, other, his ultimate judgment in order to save people. So they recognize, I don't want to face this forever. And there's a power that's revealed in these plagues we see in verses 5 through 8. We have seven angels with seven plagues. And they look like Jesus because they come from Jesus' presence because they're on Jesus' mission. And the the seven bowls, I believe, will attack the false gods just like the ten plagues attacked Egypt's false gods. They will will bring us face to face with our idolatry because God wants us to love him and experience the love that he has for us. But we have an image there of a smoky sanctuary. Look at verse 8. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is peculiar, I think, because um, it's the sanctuary. And this is where the redeemed are with a sea of glass. And does does Jesus kick everybody out until he finishes his work? Look, daddy's got to finish his work. I'll I'll be there in a second. Now, I think there there is a, a recognition that what Jesus is doing in this moment 
when we see God's glory, it kind of paralyzes us. I think that's what's being represented by this. No one could enter the smoke of the glory of God and from his power. And, and not no one could enter, no one could do anything in the sanctuary. They were kind of frozen in awe. We see this in other places in Scripture. One is at Mount Sinai. When God pronounces his glory, Exodus 19, verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. You know what everybody else did? Watched and waited. And they said, um, Moses, how about you go up there for us? And then the temple, the dedication of the temple that King Solomon built, 1 Kings 8. When the priests came out of the, of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's glory was so, it was there. They couldn't even stand up to do what they needed to do. They were just, just with God. Jesus so that when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When God pronounces his glory, nobody does anything. They watch in wonder and awe. If they're unbelievers, they watch in fear and terror. And that's what the final vindication will be. The final vindication of God's people, when, when God pours out all of everything, when he declares finally, I am God, there is no other. Everybody will have to wait and watch. But thankfully, there will be a time when those plagues are finished. Now for the unbeliever, God's final judgment will come to an end on this earth. But sadly, they await an eternity of judgment, the experience of judgment after that. But listen, for the believer, for Christians, God's final judgment has already come to an end for us. Remember when Jesus said it? It is finished. Me, God? You did that for me? Yes, God tells us over and over again. It is finished. Now what we ask, I, I sense my, my own heart when I'm in uh, adversity and spiritual struggle. I'm just asking God, can we just get this lesson over with? Can I learn my lesson? Be done. I want to move on. Get some relief to this. And we just, God, what, can you just bring this to an end? The psalmist asked, how long, O Lord? But I think what, what God is drawing our attention to is to remind us, it's already come, the biggest battle's already come to an end. So everything that we're walking through in this life, it's peanuts compared to what God's already done for us. That's what we have to focus on, right? That's what we have to focus on and cherish and, and soak in. In the midst of our adversity. So the, the conclusion for us is to fight well with worship. But in order, uh, and maybe think about it this way. We, when we want the battle to come to an end, uh, when we feel ourselves, we, we need to pick up the song of the Lamb. We need to pick up His song and focus our attention on Him to where we we feel his glory so much that, it, that we don't look for something to do. We're just there with him. God, I need your glory. And I want to experience it. 
Let's stand up if you would, and we're going to uh, give opportunity to pray for one another for a few minutes. Let's put our hearts before the Lord. Lord, we trust that you have you have been doing. Uh, you've been working your will this morning. You've been working in our hearts, in our minds. You've been preparing us for this moment. God, what we need right now is for your your, your glory to fall. to well up from within us as rivers of living water. We need your glory. We need our lives filled with the smoke of your glory. So there's a a difference about how we look and smell and sound everything. But God, I pray that we we would come to a place of simply being in awe, not looking for something to do looking for something to be. I want to be yours, God. I want to be in your presence, experiencing your love. So Lord, would you please minister to us? Lord, would you minister to us through us? Through the presence of the Spirit in us? God, I pray for words of wisdom and words of knowledge right now. They would be coming to us. Inclinations for prayer. We don't have to ask questions to know what to pray about. We, we sense something from you. God, would you please be kind to us as we pray and love on one another. saying just if if you're in the midst of adversity and you need something from the Lord, just something just come up and find a place to pray stand up here, people will come around you we will pray together so come now already spoken something to you about somebody be bold and go to that person not the narc on them like oh, God told me something no we want to care for one another amen we want to care for one another in the adversity 